You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 004, where I continue my conversation with Mike Dever, founder and CEO of Brandywine Asset Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. We do have some that trade with holding periods that would be, say, a, uh, a losing trade that's many months and a winning trade that could be a year or more. But we also have um, rather short term, okay. um, you know, that are, you know, winning trade might be two months long. You know, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. for trend following, which is, you know, pretty short term. I, sure. I, I think that the, a lot of the problem does get to the, the fact that people don't like to trade, as you pointed out, which is, a, I think, a great comment that people don't like to trade some of the more difficult strategies to trade. And I think one of the things that's helped make trend following traders successful over the last few decades is that it's not an easy strategy to trade. Um, you know, so you've, I mean, you've got to sit there and, you know, ride through multiple years sometimes of just terrible performance and then wait for that quarter where it all comes back and you yeah. make money. I, I, I think by maybe trying to just focus on trend following and smoothing returns within that style of trading, people have started curve fitting their strategies a little too much on the past data to make it look like they had solved the problem. Sure. When in reality, all they did was lower their predictability of performance. Yeah. You know, the, there, there's nothing worse than doing that because then going forward, you, you don't know what you're going to get. And and I think that's what surprised maybe a lot of these people who might have uh, overly fit their their strategies to the past data. You know, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, I really like the way that you uh, phrase it and, and have the focus on predictability rather than, a, you know, the optimal, um, you know, way of trading. So I think that that really sets you apart um it's, it's the only thing that matters yeah no no yeah. i agree but to summarize sort of the, the 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 program and the model how many if if, if he, i don't know whether it's the right phrase to say that each return driver is is a model or could there be a return driver that had trades you know multiple markets but i mean how many models uh, or return drivers are we talking about altogether and how many combinations between these return drivers or, or models and and markets uh, do you actually uh, uh, employ right. well so for so our our terminology we use at brandywine is the you have a return driver and then the return driver um, is turned into a trading strategy by identifying the markets that are relevant to that turn return driver and the actual variables you're going to measure to capture that return driver. And so you end up with a trading strategy that, you know, for example, the, the fundamentals margin cost production strategy we talked about, it's in a couple yep. dozen different markets. It's whatever markets are relevant to that, to capturing that return driver. Sure. The um, e e ETF money flow strategies, we apply that to, the, there's a number of different ETFs out there, well over a hundred that are doing leverage long, short. Um, so there's a number of different stock indexes that we can trade that are relevant to that strategy. And we do the same thing with bond markets. There's a number of, um, you know, bond durations that are, that are relevant to the bond uh, ETFs that are out there. Sure. So then you've got for, in our portfolio, you know, we've stopped giving out exact counts, but it's, sure, sure. it's, it's certainly dozens of return drivers that have been developed into trading strategies in the portfolio. 
And today, in combination, which we, we refer to as strategy market combinations, it's well over a thousand strategy market combinations in the portfolio. So any strategy may be at, at one point may be applicable to twenty or thirty markets. Sure, it may be only holding positions in one or two at a time. You know, depending on what markets were triggered. Sure, uh, sure. you know by that uh, that strategy. Yeah. But in in general. It's 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 well over a thousand now strategy market combinations in the portfolio. Yeah, well, I guess that's where technology has its advantage. That uh, it would take a, a little bit of time to keep track on that before we had computers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'd be you'd, you'd have so many mistakes in it. I don't think it's really would be almost feasible at all. You know, yeah. so yeah, this, it's it's great. It allows you to have you know so many disparate return drivers and really spread the risk. Mm. You know, across so many positions in the portfolio. Yeah. Is any of the uh, the trades you have, um, do any of them f- focus on some kind of profit level or is there always uh, a trigger that, um, you know, looks for actually the return driver to not having an effect anymore before uh, you, you exit the market? Well, remember, we're trying to capture in as pure a way possible the return driver associated yeah. with each trading strategy. So if we think there's, um, if there's something that's fundamentally based that's looking at, uh, you know, price levels in a market, then yeah, you could say that has a, a profit target, okay. you know, on the trade because it's looking at price level of the market to determine uh, an exit on it. Interesting. Now, um, shifting gear a little bit, um, trade implementation, you know, running this, you know, uh, looking at a thousand combinations and, and so on and so forth. Um, how, how often do you do you run all these uh, these uh, strategies uh, um, from you know getting the data in and 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 checking to see whether there are any new signals or trades? Uh, how how does that work from an in- implementation point of view? Okay, so it's a, it's dependent on each strategy. So we have some strategies that are only looking at um, uh, the event strategy, looking at an employment report. You know, once okay. a month. Sure. You know, it's the report comes out and that strategy is invoked and it determines whether or not there's uh, a decision to be made and orders to be placed. Sure. Uh, we've we've got others that are looking on an intraday basis, um, okay. saying, okay, based on price action, we're looking for something that occurred during the day. If that happens, um, you know, we buy or sell, you know, during the day on that strategy. I'd say that the bulk of them probably are daily, though. You know, for example, the ETF strategy I talked about. You know, it's looking at ETF money flows to trade. You know, the futures, uh, equity and bond futures. We're, we're pulling down that data each day and compiling it. And uh, we, we have an outside you know, researcher that's, that's doing that for us. And then that comes into our cadence system, which does the evaluation of whether or not there was a, a trade to be signaled or not. Um, so there's, there's a lot of them like that that are only able to collect the data on a daily basis. Sure. So they're daily strategies. So, um, but just just for me to understand, is there any of the strategies that requires sort of a constant feed during the day in order to to does to, to do the analysis, or is it all, you know, as a you know at a minimum, say end of day uh, data, or, or or is it really continuous during the day? Yeah. So there there are some that re- require continuous through the okay. day, but you know, often those are strategies that um, aren't always invoked. So they may go months where they don't care at all, and sure. then they go for periods of time where you know they're looking at every you know intraday move and making a determination where they got to do a trade. So there, there's periods where they're not invoked, and then there's periods where they're invoked. Sure. 
Sure. And um, do you tend to continue to come up with return drivers or strategies based on, on some of the current return drivers or or do you feel you're pretty full now in terms of, of, of you know, ideas uh, in, 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 in the model? No, we, we, we continue. I mean, there's just so many ideas. And I, let me backtrack on the one that's invoked. So the, the, whether strategy is invoked or not is part of the strategy. Sure. You know, it's not us sitting there saying, hey, yeah. we think we're going to use the strategy now. So I want to clarify that. But th there are, I've got a library of a backlog of return driver concepts and it, it, it's kind of amusing in a way. It's a little sad, but it's amusing that there's so much academic research that's done, say, in the equity markets. And people just fawn over the fact that, you know, Fama French have come up with a three-factor model. Sure. And, you know, not only, you know, momentum, but value and capitalization have effects on, on stock prices. And to me, it's like, well, yeah, of course. You know, but then you'll have decades of academic research that expands on that initial idea when there's literally hundreds of potential return drivers that are sitting out there mm. that people can use to properly truly diversify their portfolio <clears throat> and instead of trying to tweak you know a valuation model in equities to get an extra few basis points over some benchmark they could be looking at some fundamental model that's looking at seasonal tendencies in the cocoa market to come up with a strategy that's totally uncorrelated to everything else they're doing has a high probability that its returns will continue to recur in the future. And, and again, decades-long periods, it may lose money. Sure. But, you know, over generations, it's a sound logical strategy. No different than I think value is a sound logical strategy in trading equities. So there's, there's literally hundreds, I believe, of return drivers that are valid and that could be captured and converted into trading strategies and traded into a portfolio. So that's what Brandywine's doing is, you know, our – we started trading the portfolio with about two dozen strategies in July 2011 that were <clears throat> relevant, remained relevant from our period of trading the Brandywine Benchmark Program in the 1990s. So roughly two-thirds of the strategies we traded in the 1990s remained valid in July 2011. Okay. Those strategies we put in the portfolio. You know, today we got more than twice that number. Yeah. You know, so we've continued to develop strategies. We will continue to develop strategies. And, uh, you know, I, I just think we've got a long way to go before we've exhausted you know the the return driver opportunities sure. that that's exciting now it is. with all these things going on at the same time risk management you know to me sounds like that's you know crucial to uh, uh to keeping a balance uh, in things how how do you view risk how do you handle risk how do you you know, and again, in, in my view, I mean, I think, you know, position sizing is probably uh, greatly undervalued by many people because they don't realize how important it is uh, in order to survive in, in this business. Uh, so so how do you view that 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 side of things and how, how do you do that? It, it, it's it's everything. So when we when I talked earlier about the late 1980s and we started doing the research into the portfolio allocation models that we we're going to need to launch the benchmark program, <clears throat> the we, we understood from the beginning that we could develop strategies and determine what markets we're going to be trading in, but what mattered more than anything was how we allocate across those strategies and markets in the portfolio. And so our focus on, you know, moving from the traditional optimization models to predictive models and uh, led us to develop what we refer to today as our predictive diversification portfolio allocation model. And it's it's solely based 
on creating performance that when we look at it historically, we have a high degree of confidence that that could continue into the future. And we, we do that by creating balance across portfolio. And that's, that's if you, if you want to get predictability, one of the, the main, most important ways to do that is create portfolio balance. Now, there's a lot of ways people might argue on what is portfolio balance, you know, but for us, it means over a reasonable period of time, a generation, say, that our, our returns and our risk will be pretty much equal across each of the strategies, return drivers, um, and markets in the portfolio, that there won't be any dominant uh, tendency that, you know, interest rates are what drove the portfolio over that period, or it was all stock index or, you know, all agriculturals. So by doing that, we end up uh, on a day-to-day basis with portfolio that, you know, generally has positions spread across a lot of different areas, Um, you know, with very few outliers. Outliers may occur at times, but those outliers may mean that that could contribute to 50 basis points risk in the portfolio. That would be an outlier type position. Um, You know, nothing where you're, you know, so dominant that you're going to be able to say, oh, yeah, we we lost 10% and the drawdown was due to blank. We're we're never in that position of being able to identify a single or even a a handful of causes that contributed to a drawdown of that magnitude. It's really the entire portfolio. And and on an individual basis, does that mean that each position has a stop loss or or how do you, how do you manage the sort of the, 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 the risk from, from that point of view? Okay. So we, we let every individual trading strategy capture the return driver that it's designed to capture. Yeah. If we were to put stop losses on every strategy, on every position, we essentially turn them all into trend-following strategies. Right. Because the trend went this direction, and we went with a trade in the direction of the trend. Whether it was stopping us in or stopping us out is irrelevant. We still made a decision based on a trend. And now you've lost the diversification in the portfolio. You, it, it, a lot of people feel good about doing that because they say, oh, I can look at this position and say, if it goes here, I'm getting out. But what they've done is ruin their predictability and actually increase the risk in the portfolio because now they have multiple strategies that are being dominated by a single return driver, trend following. Sure. So, so we don't do that. We, we, we avoid any um, anything that could possibly create a single... Uh, decision point that would dominate the portfolio's performance. Uh, I, for example, I've talked to a number of people who come up with strategies for timing their portfolio or timing the investments or their allocation. If if they're down a few months in a row, they maybe increase the allocation because they think they're due to come back. What you've done is now create one variable that dominates your returns. Sure. As, as soon as you've done that, you've lost predictability. And again, the, the one sole um, you know, characteristic that we insist on across the entire portfolio is this predictability issue. And does that mean that if you get into a particular trade and say, for example, you know, the model dictates you to buy 10 lots of cocoa for that particular strategy, does they, does the strategy stay with the 10 lot position size throughout? Or is there something else that can influence volatility changes or positions in other related strategies that might uh, cause it to decrease the position size? Yeah, that's a great question. Because when I talk about portfolio balance, that means that's a dynamic issue. Yeah. So as, as you add other strategies in the portfolio with similar positions, well, necessarily they may be coming out of balance because you get 
a concentration in one position, or if a market's volatility increases and where or its price level is twice as high as it used to be. Okay. Well, if we traded the exact same position size with twice the price level and the same volatility, we would end up with twice the exposure to that. It would now be out of balance. So, so yes, the portfolio and the, this is the predictive diversific- diversification portfolio allocation model that does um, to keep things in balance adjust position sizes based on changes and correlations and volatilities across the portfolio. Mm. Yeah, very very interesting. Related to risk management comes drawdowns, and. Uh, I'd love to know, um, you know, how you uh, or whether you do predict in your uh, testing and and and, and analysis a, a level of expected drawdown for for the way the the portfolio operates and uh, and um, is that how you come up with the 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 overall balance to to say we're happy to to do this because we expect it to have uh, as you say a certain level of return a certain level of standard deviation but i don't know whether you relate that standard deviation to uh, uh, to drawdowns as well or, or how you look at that yes yeah, so I, i consider drawdowns the true measure of portfolio risk uh, volatility you can look at hundreds of examples where volatility is meaningless you know if, uh, certainly in an option writing strategy that has no volatility to it does not mean it has no risk to it. Mm. Um, you know, conversely, one of the examples I give in the book was a strategy based on a time price series that had pretty enormous volatility in it. It, it was uh, over the course of a year, I forget what the actual volatility number was, I think it was in the 30-40% range uh, of daily price activity, but it was a extra super safe strategy and highly predictable. I, all I was showing was the the average mean temperature in Philadelphia mm-hmm. on each day of the year. You know, so it's something that cyclically, you, you pretty much if you bet in the winter that it was going to go up between then and the summer, you were going to make money, mm-hmm. but it had a high level of volatility during that period. So there's dirt there's a number of instances where volatility is meaningless as a measure of risk. So we really look at, at drawdown as the true measure of risk. And we've structured our portfolio, even though I mentioned it has 8% annualized standard deviation. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Sure. It, we have about a 7% probability that you'll incur, t- about a 6% probability you'll incur 10% drawdown from start. Okay. Um, and we have about a 70% probability that you'll have sometime in the first um, uh, 10 years, you're going to have a 10% drawdown from uh, a peak equity level. Okay. Okay. So that's our numbers. Now we feel pretty confident that targeting a daily standard deviation of 50 basis points, which comes out to about an 80% annualized standard deviation is a, a f- fairly good proxy for us to target those drawdown probabilities. Sure. And that's just because of the way our portfolio is built, you know, with the diversification balance across it, there is a reasonable relationship between volatility and drawdown. It's where volatility and drawdown break down in the relationship is when you don't have a balanced, truly diversified portfolio. You're you're just doing one strategy or a sector of markets. Um, it, then the volatility that you're looking at is, is virtually meaningless, which is why, to me, sharp ratio is a absolutely meaningless um, measure on its own. It doesn't give you any idea of predictability of returns i mean i i couldn't i couldn't agree more and, and in fact we um you know over the years uh, we looked at um you know hundreds of cta track records and what we found as a rule of thumb was actually that you should expect a maximum drawdown uh for any manager of roughly 
five times their monthly standard deviation. So if you have someone who's, you know, on a 5% monthly standard deviation, you should expect them to lose 25% at some point. And that, that, you know, as a rule of thumb, that's not uh, too far off. I, I think, I think it's pretty close. And, and if you have the, the less diversified their portfolio in strategies sure. and markets, the, the bigger that drawdown is going to be relative to that standard deviation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Now, uh, Mike, You've been around for a long time, and I'm sure some of the people listening today uh, would love to hear your view on that. And that is, you know, drawdown certainly adds to the emotional roller coaster that all managers go through. I mean, how do you, or, or, or what helps you keep an emotional balance when you go through these periods? It, it's it's no different when we're making money or when we're losing money. It I, I don't have anything in my track record that shows I will not incur a drawdown. You know, it's a natural process. It, it's just part of our program. So, for example, last summer in uh, mid-2013, we were in what I was referring to people uh, as a perfect drawdown. We, on an intraday basis, it was 8.5%. On a month-end basis, about 7.5%. Peak to trough, which was at that point in our trading, exactly where we should have had maximum drawdown. It was a little delayed. It might have, it should have happened, you know, half a year or so sooner by then. So the probability was getting out there. And what we sent out in our monthly report, you know, notice that, hey, this is, this is a perfect drawdown. Um, if, if you want to invest now, it's, it's great time to do that. I'm not advocating timing because, if you happen to have the drawdown, great, take advantage of it, but you don't want to wait for a drawdown because you give up the positive return expectancy you achieve on a month to month basis. But at, at that time, it was just, it was a perfect drawdown. I, it's, I, I don't, I guess, react one way or another to it. It's just what it is. It's, it's what it should be. Um, so you just, I accept that as well as I accept the positive period. Yeah. No, no, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect response, but I guess, uh, so few people out there on the investment, uh, you know, allocator side uh, will um, will see it the same way as we as on the, on the manager side do. But it, it uh, is funny, you know, because yeah. they'll look at the back yeah. testing and the track record, the actual track record, and they'll see there's a eight percent drawdown. Yeah. But then when you have it, it's they they question it like yeah. there's something wrong with it. No, it's it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, nothing different. It's it's, it's no different than you know you have have a child and they grow well. <laughs> Yeah, you're upset because they spurted six inches or whatever. They didn't. They're they're just supposed to do that. Yeah, no, the trading that's, systems are supposed to do the same thing. Sure. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Just touching a little bit on 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 the business side uh, of 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 that. Um, you know, maybe more general observations, but but also if you can speak to it on uh, in terms of how you approach it. I mean, uh, you know, I guess partly because of the. Uh, performance uh, or lack of performance in on, on on the traditional cta side and and partly because of the extraordinary good performance in in equities the last few years growing businesses uh, have become much harder for 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 ctas and and similar styles how how do you approach the 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 growth side of of brandywine and 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 and, and what what do you focus on in in that area well as you might suspect we're we're, we're fairly systematic in how we approach that. Sure. Um, it, you know, it's just a, a process. And <clears throat> no different than when I grew benchmark in, in the 90s. We, we grew from a million. We had close to 200 million at our peak when I, you know, got involved with Spree and launching Spree.com. And similar process today. It's just staying in front of people, keeping them informed. We don't really consider ourselves part of an industry. You know, we, we, we use futures to trade, but sure. 
we, we trade the way we trade. And, you know, it's from what we can see, it's very different than what equity guys do or what CTAs do, you know, for the most part. Now, from a regulatory standpoint, we're registered as a CTA because sure. we trade in the futures markets. But when we talk to people, um, we, we, we don't try to talk about the industry. We, we simply talk about what we do. And so, uh, for example, I, I, I did a talk in uh, Europe a few months ago, and I realized coming out of that that I never once measured or mentioned futures yeah. in the entire presentation about what we do and how we trade. And it wasn't an intentional slight. It was just that I was talking about return driver-based investing, developing trading strategies, predictive diversification, a global diversification across it. And when somebody asked in the audience, you know, well, how do you do that? <laughs> that's when I realized, oh, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't tell you guys. We, we use futures markets to execute these strategies hmm. because that's the most efficient way for us to get access to these various markets. You know, so, uh, you know, in, in a way, we're registered as a CTA. That makes us a CTA, but that's not how we present ourselves. We present ourselves as globally diversified managers. Sure. And, 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 and as a, uh, again, looking at the business side, is it different today than it was uh, when you ran the benchmark program? And I mean, is it running the business, so to speak? Has that changed? Is there any different challenges? I mean, you mentioned regulation. I don't know whether you view that as a challenge or, or, or what, but I mean, has anything changed from, from that point of view, do you think? Well, regulation is always a challenge because you've got regulators who don't understand what the goal of their job is. And so they do the wrong things. For example, USITs in, in Europe, you know, they put this huge structure together, the USIT structure. And as part of it, they, they essentially mandated you cannot diversify your portfolios. You can't have commodities yeah. included in a USIT structure. Sure. Now, who would do that? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just the, the, the most insane structure. I mean, sure. if you really want to try to get, you know, true di diversification of portfolio and lower risk to investors, you, you would you would almost demand that they put that into the portfolio. Yeah. You, know, you know, so you have things like that, you know, that so there's, there's, and you know, the U.S., you know, that's almost innumerable, the, the problems you have with the regulatory environment and keeping the people who could best benefit, mm. you know, from these types of investments out of them, you know, yeah. the smaller investor who can only go into mutual funds, you know, they can't go into our product. You know, all these people who have money invested in 401ks, you know, which is just a huge market. 401ks have these captive um, structures where people are essentially limited to being long equities or long bonds. Mm. You know, essentially they're telling people you have to gamble with your money. The intent was that they prevent risk but they've created it, you know, so that's, that's always a bit of an issue. The, the other side is that in the nineties, we, we actually did get a reasonable amount of client introductions through, uh, FCMs through, through brokers today. It, it's not happening. And it's, it's part of it's because of this concentration of the FCMs and the fact that you have IBs, but IBs are essentially prohibited from putting their clients into diversified products because, they can't put them into a fund. They're not SEC registered. They're not broker dealers. Sure. So, so they can only put them into managed accounts. And the clients they have are looking for $25,000 to maybe $200,000 managed accounts. Uh, by definition, you're going to create uh, an undiversified portfolio when you're trading something that size. You know, so they're going into to managed accounts that have higher level of risk than if they were able to go into a, a fund but they can't go into the funds. The IBs can't refer them to the fund because the IB can't get paid on it. So you've got a lot of impediments to doing the right thing for investors that the regulatory you know authorities have put into place so we we have seen changes and some differences and um, for us it's been the growth so far has been direct to investor 
Yeah. Uh, you know, we're now in some uh, number of due diligence processes with institutional investors. You know, it seems like there's a, an, a level of individual high net worths that can come into us direct. And, and uh, then you have the institutional guys who are looking for diversification of the portfolio and coming to us direct. But in between that sort of middle range of, uh, you know, other FCM or IB referred investors, that's just not there anymore. Yeah. And, and do you find on, on that side that the institutional investors have, have they changed? I mean, we all know that the, the landscape have changed. I mean, the fund of funds industry clearly was, has been diminished since 2009. But I mean, do you, do you find that uh, the way they approach potential allocations to a firm like Brandywine, I mean, do you think that's changed as well? I mean, is it is it is it more difficult today uh, to uh, convince them of of the benefits they get from from making an allocation to you, for example? Well, we're just now starting to make those pitches more. Okay. So it's it's hard for me to say compared to you know twenty years ago what that's like. I, I do think there's certainly much more awareness in the institutional investors than there were than there was twenty years ago. Mm. So, so I I think it's it's easier to talk to them. The, the flip side of that, though, is that awareness comes with a uh, preconceived idea of, of what it is you're doing. And so, so if I went to them, for example, and said CTA, and I said systematic, and I said diversified, they automatically, I'll spend the next hour telling them why we're not trend followers. Because yeah. that's all they know. Yeah. You know, and, and we, we've gotten mandates that have, you know, we've responded to where a consultant got an institutional investor to, to go out to find specifically trend following CTAs mm. for their portfolio because they the, the consultants don't know what they're doing right so they they just see that this return driver trend following looks like it's been beneficial and provided tail risk uh, protection over time so we think you should have some of that in their portfolio in your portfolio rather than looking at it and saying oh let's let's go with a return driver based approach you want to have diversification across your portfolio mm. let's let's try to diversify across return drivers they've only identified the one trend yeah. following yeah. that that they think is suitable so you know i don't think you get a lot of value out of consultants except for they they, they cover the ass of the the institution which is nice but you know from that standpoint if an institution's using a consultant a lot of times they're not going to make the right decisions but we are seeing um, institutions who are doing their own thinking and analysis who are, are starting to make what I would consider the right decisions to diversify yeah. the portfolios. Yeah. And I think also, you know, part, part of the, the problem has been that I think maybe we as a, as a collective group of, 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 uh, you know, managers have been focusing on explaining, you know, how we do things and, and what we do, but, but we actually left out probably the most important uh, point and that is why we do it why do we do what we do and and i think you actually have a great story and 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 the whole concept of return drivers and so on and so forth to me when i hear it, it sounds much more like the why and, and i think that's what that's that's what's important i mean it doesn't really matter whether we use computers or whether we use you know breakout or moving averages but you know why do we do what we do that that's what people should be buying and paying attention to right and i think from a manager standpoint as well it just 
provide such a structure and level of comfort. I mean, we know exactly what we need to be doing. Mm. It's just, it, it's, it's been, it goes back 25 years to when we first discovered this concept of return drivers. It, it makes it real easy for us when we're developing a strategy to figure out where we're getting our returns and, and not just be back testing and number crunching and trying to figure out why something works. It starts out with the premise yeah. of why we think it'll work, yeah. you know? And it, so it just, it just makes it so much easier and more comfortable for us to develop strategies and build out a portfolio than I think maybe a lot of institutions who don't really know what they're capturing. They just were told from a consultant that they need to have trend following to help provide tail risk. Sure. Sure. Uh, Mike, the last sort of section that I, I wanted to, to, to cover today um, is a section that uh, is not uh, part of the standard questions that uh, people, people ask when they come and, and, and see you, no doubt. So I just want to, you know, take a few of these and, and just uh, uh, get your opinion. And, and I'm sure a lot of people will, will uh, really appreciate, uh, you know, looking at it from, from your experience and, um, and, and in particular, you know, the part of the audience that maybe aspire to be, you know, the next uh, Brandywine uh, and so on and so forth. So, so in your opinion, I mean, what, what does it take to be, to become a great trader or be a great trader? But what, what, what does it take nowadays to, to get to that point? All right. So, you know, the, to do what we do, um, you, you do need a fairly sizable base of research. Um, yeah, somebody, if some people are willing to take more risks than we're willing to take, they could develop, uh, you know, a handful of strategies structured around a similar return driver, maybe. Uh, but they've got to understand, really appreciate the fact that they're, they're taking a huge amount of business risk in that they may go just years and years with subpar negative performance. You know, now it, it doesn't mean that it's not worth taking the risk and developing some sound, logical strategies based on, you know, return drivers and not having the full diversification. You may want to start your business that way and hope in the first few years that you happen to have one of the more positive periods associated with that return driver. Um, <clears throat> but I, it, it, it's, it's difficult, you know, because the, what we do and what we strongly believe is you need that, that broad strategy and market diversification, which you can't just sort of do seat of the pants with a small amount of equity. You know, it doesn't mean you can't start with a small amount of equity. Um, you're just going to be taking a higher risk because the probability that your performance is going to repeat in the future as it did in the past is going to be lower. But I would always recommend having a structure in place, systematic application of whatever that strategy is you have, um, and, and diversify it as much as you can. If it's a single return driver, make sure you apply it to every relevant market, you know, not just the ones it tested well on. Uh, every relevant market, even if they lost money, because going forward, those may very well be the markets that perform for you. Sure. And when you first started out, Mike, was there anyone that you were aspiring to be? I mean, you obviously mentioned some of the people who became, you know, and still are, the, you know, some of the greatest managers uh, in, in the world. But I mean, did you have anyone at the time when you started out uh, that you were looking at saying, wow, you know, if I one day could have a business like them, you know, I'll be very happy. It, it it's funny because I not really, I didn't, I just always kind of was me. Um, <laughs> but I remember looking at one point to a CTA who had about a million under management. And at that time, people were charging six and 15. <laughs> and this was late 70s. And I looked at that and I said, wow, if I could get a million under management, I'd make 60,000 a year. Yeah. 
and thinking that would be the greatest thing. Sure. You know, to, to have that kind of steady income coming off of managing the money. Mm. So, but I never, I guess, looked at any single manager. There, 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 a number of people out there that I've been associated with or, you know, worked with, like the, the people I mentioned earlier over the years that, sure. you know, I greatly admire. I mean, they're, they're not just great traders in a lot of cases. They're just really great people. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's one thing that I've, I've, I've loved about futures as an industry, if you, you know, refer to it as an industry is that it seems like there's some of the best, most humble, decent people that operate within this industry. Mm. And, and I saw, you know, I've had exposure, we've done market equity strategies and other equity based strategies as well. And I didn't see that sure. on the traditional side. That's you know, I saw a lot of hubris and, you know, a lot of arrogance and, you know, people that I just didn't enjoy being around as much as mm. the futures people, you know, for some reason. And I keep coming back to them. But nobody in particular, just, sure. you know, a synthesis of all the people I've seen that I've tried to, uh, to aspire being the best of each of them. Sure. And um, do you have any kind of sort of like a, a personal habit that you do that you believe has been, you know, contributing in particular to, to your own success? Is there anything about what you do on a daily basis that you say, wow, you know, this, this has really helped me over the years. You know, I have no lucky socks. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think you know, my, my biggest flaws over the years were seeing too, too many opportunities and trying to capture them. Right. And, you know, moving into to things like uh, spree.com and the various technology ventures I got involved in, which took my, my focus away from Brandywine, you know, and I, I, I wasn't fully joking when I said, you know, the downside is, you know, I could have owned a professional baseball team yeah. today. <laughs> you know, I did, you know, I, there, so I definitely look back and I have things that I regret. And so I've changed some of the ways I structure my day and I do things to avoid regrets, I yeah. guess, but nothing in, in particular for the, for the most part, but overall, I guess it's stay as focused as I can, on, you know, for example, the last few years, you know, we haven't distracted Brandywine with getting into any of the other strategies we did in the past, market neutral equity strategies, for example, or long short, um, you know, strategies. We're, we're, we're very focused on what we're doing, you know, with, with Brandywine Symphony program. And, uh, you know, so if there's any kind of a, a daily ritual or focus, it's just to kind of make sure I've got my, my checklist and everything on that list is, you know, driving me towards the you know, the goal of just building up Brandywine, creating the best product. Yeah. And, and based on everything you've learned over the years, and uh, if you were starting today, would you do anything different or, 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 or and if so, what? Oh, you don't have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not one of these guys who look back and say, I do everything exactly the same. I, right. I, I, I'm constantly going, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Yeah. Oh, I should change this. I, yeah. I mean, big and small, little things day to day, things I said, you know, that, I'm sure if I listen back to this conversation, there'll be a dozen things right out of the gate. I'll go, oh my God, I sound like an idiot. Why'd I say that? You know, yeah. so, so there's always regrets, I guess, in that sense, but I just keep moving forward. Sure. Um, definitely if I started over, I would do a lot of things different. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have spent as much time on the discretionary trading, but, but I learned a hell of a lot. Exactly. I don't think I could have done today what I did without that experience. You know, so I would have spent certainly a lot of time on it, maybe not as much. I, I, I would have stayed more focused on building out the systematic models and just adhering to what we did, you know, through the nineties instead yeah. of getting involved with some of the internet ventures. Sure. There's, there's a lot of things I would have done on a business standpoint, but overall I'm, I'm real satisfied where we are, where we are and, uh, you know, my life and 
you know, business and family, everything's, uh, it's going great. And I think, I mean, uh, and I think that that is the key point because, you know, I, I think sometimes people have, you know, just, you know, the wrong expectations. I mean, I think they come into a, to the business and they think, oh, you know, we're going to be right on every single trade and we're going to make money and it's great. But but the reality is that, you know, m- most firms in our business, they, they have many more losers than they have winners. And, 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 and I think that's, that, that's the point. I mean, we, we have to accept that, you know, nothing is perfect and we make mistakes and we learn from them, we move forward. So I think that that's definitely something people need to take away from uh, from that if they're looking yeah, to get into this business yeah. Yeah. yeah one of the comments i make in, in in the office here every trade is a mistake and it's just so true i mean you'll have a trade you you pick up a big profit on it you, you know get out of that trade and you would have stayed with it another three days you would have made <laughs> twice the profit every trade is a mistake nothing's yeah, perfect sure you know it's just a matter of you know fuzzily being right most mm. of the time yeah yeah what do you think what what is the one question that allocators today should be asking you but when you know when they do their due diligence but but they never do i mean is there something where you say you know this is really what you should be focusing on i know you've alluded a little bit to it earlier you know because they focus on maybe putting you into a box before they even get to know you but i mean is there anything out there where you say this is really what they should be focusing and asking but but they never do yeah, no question. The, the the main thing that seems to be a, almost a side thought is predictability of performance. Right. The, the the first question, it's not what's your edge or, you know, which, which they'll ask or explain this drawdown you had. It's why is what you're doing going to continue into the future similar to what you're showing me you've done in the past? Mm-hmm. That, that, is, that is the singular most important question that is not asked. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And if you could ask a question to the next guest on on top traders unplugged what what would that be what would you like to ask one of your peers well i'd like to ask them what return drivers they have that i haven't discovered yet <laughs> yeah of course absolutely and just uh, finishing off uh, mike um is there a fun fact about yourself that uh, that you could share that uh, a lot of people might not know about you <laughs> uh, you know i I, I, I'm very focused on on the business. Um, Twenty years ago, I got married, and uh, you know, I got three great kids now. It's, you know, I realized from the first twenty years in the business uh, without family that, you know, that during that period, that was everything to me. I, I just lived and breathed the business. Yeah. You know, since then, um, you know, I've kind of had a very nice balance between family and business. You know, fun fact, I guess I, I've had two separate lives in a way. I had that, that great pre-family life that, you know, sure. I, I did racing cars and flying airplanes and doing fun single guy stuff and, uh, you know, moved into the the new life where I'm getting ready to head to my son's track meet when we're, when we're off this interview, you yeah. know, so it's nothing, I guess nothing fun. I'm kind of pretty normal and regular for the most part, <laughs> I guess. Balance in your portfolio, balance in your family life. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, before we finish, uh, Mike, um, where's the best place the the uh, audience uh, and people who are interested in learning more about Brandywine, where can they best uh, reach out to you and, and find you? Uh, the simplest would be going to the website, which is uh, www.brandywine.com. Great stuff. 
Mike, this has really been a, a great conversation. I, I truly appreciate your openness and, and willingness to share your insights and views on your strategy and the firm and, and, and the industry as a whole. And, and of course, you know, our listeners can find uh, more details on the discussion today in the show notes uh, for this episode on toptradersonplug.com. And uh, I hope to connect with you at a later date and get an update on all the great things uh, that you do. So thank you very much and uh, uh, take care. I appreciate it. Thank you, Niels. And I hope it was helpful for your, uh, your listeners. Absolutely. Have Thanks. a great day. Take care. Bye. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.